Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with Franklin County Commissioner Kevin Boyce. He was in Washington, D.C. earlier this week attending the National Association of Counties Legislative Conference. I'll talk with him about that, as well as what he believes to be the pressing issues in Franklin County. Then we'll have a segment about heart valve disease. Later, courtesy of 10TV, Scott Light will have a roundtable discussion about various political issues, including math and English requirements for Ohio students, the minimum wage, and early voting. In about 40 minutes, a representative from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration discusses vehicle safety recalls, and I'll wrap up the hour talking with someone from Disabled American Vets about hiring vets. First up on Columbus Perspective, this was recorded a few days ago in the midst of a conference in D.C. He has since returned. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Franklin County Commissioner Kevin Boyce. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Dave. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what you're doing there. So we are convening as a part of the National Organization of Counties, and so that's uh, over 3,000 counties represented uh, here in Washington, D.C., to really engage in the legislative process. You know, we represent issues that uh, affect counties collectively, uh, but also allow us to learn and engage, learn uh, what other counties are doing, exchange and engage uh, on different ideas. And so it's really, I think, a worthwhile investment of our time. And I think most of the commissioners that are here are really utilize the time and resource of the network to do just that. It must be kind of fascinating because uh, all the counties in, in some ways have got a lot in common, and yet in other ways, I'm sure they don't. Absolutely. You know, county government is one of the first forms of government in uh, American history. And so there's a lot of rich uh, history that goes into it. And and with that, there are counties that are really, really small. And uh, then there are counties that are really, really large. There are counties that have uh, very small populations and there are counties that have very large populations. And so when you get those folks together, oftentimes you can uh, really exchange ideas, but learn in a way that uh, you just can't do on the fly when you're immersed in your own county. And so uh, so I'm pretty sure everybody has, has uh, gotten the most out of uh, the convening. What are the particular areas of concern you're looking at? Well, there are a number of concerns that I, I think are universal for counties because of the way we're structured in local government. Uh, let me start with cybersecurity. Um, that has been something that's been in the forefront since the last election. And so as most counties handle elections, we're immersed in how can we protect the integrity of the process? How can we um, support uh, the confidence that our citizens have in the voting and elections process? And so with that, we're, we're looking at at a very creative and um, technological ways that we can ensure uh, folks can can uh, be ensure that their vote will count and that will not be manipulated. And so, and that, that's a really a complex conversation because it occurs on so many levels. And and uh, I think it's been productive. The, the, the there's two other areas that I just point out too that we were uh, deeply immersed in, and it's long-term pension funding uh, and credit ratings. Uh, and, and then I'd say the uh, impact of the census. Uh, you know, we are in a census year, uh, you know, because, you know, we do that every 10 years. And, and that determines uh, a lot of the funding that we get for all of the things we need from infrastructure to affordable housing. And so everyone is zeroed in and focused on how we can be counted as exact as possible so that we can ensure we get our fair share to do the best that we can for our citizens. And then and then finally on the pension funding. 
you know, there's not a state, a county, or a local government that isn't thinking long-term about uh, their own uh, pension viability. And uh, and so here we had an opportunity to exchange ideas around diversity and inclusion uh, and what that means to our bottom line in pensions. And uh, I think the work that comes out of what counties have done can really, uh, in, in long-term, be a substantial um, impact for our pension funds, at least in the thinking. And, and you know, finally, We've been talking about federalism, and that's the idea that um, uh, the federal government gives the local and state government uh, the resources to support the mandates that come down. And, and so when you say census, and it, you know, there's an impact that census has on the local community. And so the funding to go with that to help us count the undercounted and to uh, serve the underserved um, is rooted in our accuracy on, on census data. And, and so all of those things have been the forefront of our convening and conversation. I think every county commissioner or supervisor or judge across uh, the United States is thinking about those things. Talking with Franklin County Commissioner Kevin Boyce, there's been a lot of talk lately about it, you know, the possibility of another recession being around the corner here, and we've seen some a lot of volatility on the stock market. It has been 10 to 12 years since this has happened. Has that been enough time for local, state, county governments to prepare financially for something like that to happen again? Maybe not on that scale, but, you know, when you're talking about pensions and all this other stuff. Sure. I mean, you know, the coronavirus it impact on the financial markets is real. And, you know, the impacts uh, will, will not all play out immediately. They'll play out over uh, some time. But that's one of the beauty about being a county commissioner, one of the beauties in being a county commissioner. You've got to think, you're always thinking about the health and viability of our um, credit and financial environment situation. And so we make decisions day to day that um, anticipate uh, blips in the market, changes in the market that could uh, have a negative impact for some time. That's why we keep reserve funds. That's why, um, you know, we have a rainy day fund, you know, and these are the things that allow us to, when these times present themselves, to be prepared. And I think some counties have, in Franklin County, for example, we're a AAA rated uh, county by um, uh, two of the rating agencies, and that means we have the highest credit standing. And so what that means is we're practicing and doing the things on a day-to-day and annual basis that put us in position to absorb these blips in the market. And hopefully, with the uh, coronavirus's impact on the market, hopefully it doesn't go too long to where the effect is uh, is long-term. In, 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 and I think many counties are looking to us and other sort of strengthened counties to learn from what they can do to prepare for that and, and how to respond if you're not prepared currently. Having been state treasurer, does that make you feel like you've got kind of a an insider's look at Ohio's counties uh, and how they stand in a lot of these measures? Absolutely, absolutely. When you're when your county when you're state treasurer, uh, you you have a presence statewide. You you have offices in all these different communities, and so you you become a citizen of of those counties, and you learn more about the culture, and you learn learn more about the climate in in those counties, and. Uh, and so it does give us the insight to think about it. And in fact, I chair for uh, NACO, I chair the Finance, Pensions, and Intergovernmental Affairs Committee. And that's what really gives me that um, that broad lens to be able to look at um, all of these counties, just like I did when I was treasurer, to try to understand how a uh, large county and a smaller county, um, while they may have basic same attributes, that the considerations aren't always the same and the perspective isn't always the same. And so and how we address their problems certainly isn't the same. And, and that allows us to be creative in our thinking, but to provide them with information that may be helpful to how they plan going forward.
President Trump will be speaking. Now, he's somebody who hasn't served in government at any level at all, other than presidency, amazingly enough. Do you mm-hmm. expect him to add anything substantive to the uh, discussion when he speaks? Well, uh, you know, I hope that he talks about uh, the federal government and the White House's response to uh, some of the coronavirus conversation discussions. I think, uh, well, I appreciate the media's ability to deliver information and resource, you know, hearing from the CDC directly, hearing the White House's plan and strategy directly are all things that I think are valuable as they, there are implications on our financial markets, there are implications on our own um, budgeting and uh, execution of our um, financial environments. And so, you know, I'm hoping that he does talk about those things. I'm, I'm also hoping he talks about cybersecurity. I mean, that since his election, that's been something Something that's been at the forefront of conversation nationally with regards to county. And so I think he has an opportunity uh, here to set the record straight for what uh, the White House and the federal government is doing to support. And, and they are they have done some things. They've invested uh, at some level in um, they've helped, for example, in Franklin County, they've helped us. We received a pretty sizable grant to buy new voter machines. And so um, with their support and our own local investment, we've been able to provide brand new election equipment that is better equipped to address cyber challenges or uh, scares today. And those are the things I want to hear them talking about. And, you know, transportation uh, and housing uh, and infrastructure, all the things that I think county commissioners are going to want to hear. Just a couple of minutes to go here with Franklin County Commissioner Kevin Boyce. What would you say in a nutshell are, say, the, the top three issues of concern in, in Franklin County? Uh, I, let me start with housing. You know, we are, are a growing county. We're just uh, just under 1.4 million residents, and uh, it will continue to grow. The census is projecting that we're going to grow uh, by over a million people over the next 20 to 25 years. And, and what that means is we've got to provide uh, an environment for those families and those people to be successful. And it starts with affordable housing, a place to live, a place to be able to raise your family. And so uh, we've got to do a better job right now. Uh, right now, we are 50,000 affordable housing units short, uh, and that's of today's standards. And so as we grow, we've got to be very aggressive at addressing uh, our housing needs. The second one, I'd say, is infrastructure. Um, if you've been on any highway in Columbus at 8 o'clock or 5 o'clock, you know that uh, you can get into a traffic jam. And so we've got to find ways for people to uh, travel to and from work and school and, and, and other activities in a safe and timely manner. And so we've got to be thoughtful about our public transportation uh, challenges and issues. And then, and then finally, um, certainly with that growth uh, comes um, economic development, uh, you know, an opportunity for folks to access good-paying jobs that allow them to live, work, and raise their family in Central Ohio as opposed to moving somewhere else. And so I think as our growth challenges really hit us over the next five to ten years, the more we can do in those three areas, the more I think our citizens will have confidence in what we're doing and in, in, in the changes that they see in Central Ohio, and particularly Franklin County. Good stuff. Uh, Commissioner Kevin Boyce, uh, he's in Washington. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? The only thing I'd add is uh, we've had a a very robust conversation on uh, immigration, too. And uh, while we're not a border state or border county, uh, Franklin County, the growth that I spoke of earlier, the vast majority of those growing, uh, the segment of the population that's growing the most are new Americans. And so even in Central Ohio, we're going to have to begin to think about good ways to uh, accommodate uh, families that are uh, making their way to our community and, and being a part of our community in the best way that we can for them to be successful and to make the community around them even more successful than it currently is.
Franklin County Commissioner Kevin Boyce, thanks so much for taking time out for us today. Sure appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dave. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wounds? 911, what's your emergency? Please help. My, my son shot his brother. I Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. New research shows 11 million Americans are affected by heart valve disease, but three out of four Americans know little to nothing about it. And that includes yours truly. That's why today on Columbus Perspective, I'm speaking with Lindsay Clark. Lindsay is the vice president of health education and advocacy for the Alliance for Aging Research. And we'll be learning together about heart valve disease. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on Columbus Perspective. Oh, thank you. So February 22nd, not all that long ago, was National Heart Valve Disease Awareness Day. I think most people are probably familiar with the blanket term heart disease, but what is heart valve disease? How is it different from what we already know? Well, that's a good point that people are generally aware about heart disease. Um, But generally, when people think about heart disease, they think about things like heart attack or congestive heart failure or even some of the risk factors like high blood pressure that can lead to heart problems. But they don't often think about heart heart valve disease. Um, We did some research a few years ago that found that three out of four Americans know little to nothing about heart valve disease. And what heart valve disease is, is it involves damage to one or more of the heart's four valves. And while some types are not serious, others can have um, severe consequences, including death. And we know that as many as 11 million Americans have heart valve disease. So it's it's a big problem that we need more awareness around. So obviously you highlighted on the most severe of the risks involved with heart valve disease, which is death. But what are some of the other risks that come with heart valve disease and maybe some symptoms that folks should be looking for? Well, generally, um, the disease does progress, so it's something that needs to be addressed at some point. I think people who are living with less severe disease can still have it impacting their quality of life, so they can have symptoms that are really debilitating. Um, It can decrease their independence, so even before it gets serious, it is something that people need to think about. But in terms of symptoms, um, because of the damage to the valves, the blood isn't able to, the heart can't pump blood effectively to the heart, heart and the rest of the body. So People can experience symptoms like uh, pain or discomfort in the chest, uh, extreme tiredness, uh, feelings of dizziness, or even fainting. And then as it progresses, they may experience swelling in their abdomen or in their ankles and feet. But it's important to note that not everyone experiences symptoms. Um, and for those people, it's really important that they're seeing their healthcare professional because it can be detected um, by listening to your heart with a stethoscope. The, the valve um, damage can produce a heart murmur which is an irregular heart sound. So it can be found just by listening to your heart, which is the theme of Heart Valve Disease Awareness Day. So if I understand you correctly, this is not one of those uh, conditions that I should necessarily be asking my doctor about, uh, but one that 
that they might find if they were looking for other things naturally. Is that correct? Um, they should be listening to your heart every time you see them every year. Um, so it is something they should be looking for. But it's also really important to know your risk. Um, and so some people can be born um, with valve damage that can lead to problems later in life. But it can be um, just acquired from age due to wear and tear or infection or even um, radiation for some cancers. So I think it is something that even though you may not need to be talking about it every time you visit, if you do have risk factors, like other heart diseases or conditions, or you're aging, it is something you should be talking to your doctor about. We do know that one out of 10 adults over the age of 75 have moderate to severe heart valve disease. You sort of touched on this, but does it affect different groups more or less, say men versus women or different ethnic groups? Well, age is a major risk factor, but we do know that African-Americans are diagnosed at younger ages, and that's due in part because to um, higher rates of diabetes or hypertension that can lead to and exacerbate valve disease. So based on your research, how does Ohio compare to other states when it comes to rates or prevalence of heart valve disease? Well, we do know that Ohio has a high rate of, of heart disease generally. So there's as many as 29,000 deaths um, each year in Ohio. Um, and there are, there are around 1,000 deaths due to heart valve disease each year in Ohio. And did your research turn up any reasons that Ohio might rank higher than other states when it comes to heart valve disease? Any sort of causation there? Well, it, it could be an aging population, and it can be due to other risk factors like diabetes, as I mentioned, and hypertension. And other, um, other risk factors that we think of generally for heart disease also can increase risk for heart valve disease. Gotcha. And can we talk a little bit about your organization? You're the Vice President of Health, Education, and Advocacy for the Alliance for Aging Research. Can you tell us a bit about what your organization's mission is? Sure. Yes. The Alliance for Aging Research is the leading national nonprofit organization, and we're working to accelerate research so that we can enhance the experience of aging and health for all Americans. So we really deal with a lot of diseases and conditions and topics of aging, from Alzheimer's to vision loss to other types of heart disease. And if folks want to learn more about the Alliance for Aging Research or about heart valve disease, is there somewhere they can go to get that information? Sure. To learn more about Heart Valve Disease Awareness Day, they can visit valvedisease.day.org. And to learn more about the Alliance for Aging Research, they can visit us at agingresearch.org. Once again, I've been speaking with Lindsay Clark, Vice President of Health, Education, and Advocacy for the Alliance for Aging Research. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on Columbus Perspective today. Likewise. Thank you, Daniel. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of 10TV, here is Scott Light from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Here's Scott. 
Welcome to another Sunday morning. Welcome to another edition of Face the State. Good morning to you. I'm Scott Light. We're glad you're with us this morning. Let me introduce you to a terrific group of guests. State Representative Stephanie House is back with us. She represents District 11. She's also an executive member of the Cleveland NAACP. The mayor of Lancaster, longtime resident there, David Scheffler, is here. He serves on various boards and is also an Army veteran. We also welcome Athens Mayor Steve Patterson to Face the State. He's a veteran as well at the U.S. Air Force. He's in his second term as mayor. And Greg Lawson joins us as well, research fellow from the Buckeye Institute with expertise in the state budget, local government, taxes, transportation, and education, just to name a few. Welcome, everyone. It's good to have you here. Good morning. Happy to be here. Let's start off the show with a question, and it's this. Should Ohio lower high school graduation requirements? The state school superintendent wants Ohio students to be, quote, competent in English and algebra instead of, quote, proficient. The new requirements, by the way, start with the 2023 class, which is this year's high school freshman. Representative, I'll come to you with that question. Should yeah. we lower them? <laughs> so I, I think I, I look at it as a different, from a different approach. Okay. I really think we need to look at what best positions our young people, our children, our scholars to actually be successful. Okay. And, you know, so the whole proficient co- co- um, being competent, we can get caught up in the words, but what actually are the results? Where do we want our young people to go? How are we setting them up to live the American dream here in Ohio so that they will be a vital part of our economy and actually be assured to compete not only in Ohio, not only in America, but across the world? Okay. The mayor of Lancaster, David Scheffler. Mayor, what do you think? Well, from, I've spent 40 years in the business sector, so I would be concerned about uh, the moving target. How do businesses rely on the confidence of graduates? If, if I'm going to hire somebody, uh, can they read? Can they write? Can they do simple math? And uh, I don't know if they know what the product is now because it goes up, it goes down. I, it seems like the, the, the aim is to make sure a certain percentage of high school seniors actually graduate, not necessarily to prove confidence Hmm. in those critical skills that businesses need. Athens Mayor Steve Patterson. Mayor, jump in here. You know, I think the whole topic is fascinating to me when I'm looking at this. You know, as I understand it, you know, certainly this is going to address or look at changing the scoring for math and for English, in particular Algebra 1 and English 2. Um, but you start looking at, at some of the content like biology, when you look at that in terms of competency, 50% of the statewide students are able to pass that particular score. So it raises the question for me, and that is, is the, are, the testing, are the tests being used, are they reliable, and are they um, uh, valid tests? You know, because something's amiss here. So we can either change and drop the scores, to where more people can pass, or should we take a closer look at what the the test actually is? Because our test is very different from other states across the nation. Okay. Uh, and in some cases, the testing questions and what's in them are somewhat arbitrary. And to get back to David's point, you know, I think the other thing we need to kind of be cognizant of is the difference between competence and proficiency. Competence is just being able to stack every other content together and you graduate and you are competent in the, this layer of the stacking of contents. The other thing is proficiency, where proficiency shows that you are ready, job ready, to get out there and perform something. So for math in particular, either you're, you're ready or you're not ready. Mm. 
Um, English is the same thing. <clears throat> Greg? Well, I think that uh, I actually echo a lot of what the representative was saying because I, I, I think that we have to also look at this within the context of all the changes that were made to the graduation requirements. And so there's a lot of, uh, I think what we're really trying to do is say that uh, some of our testing and some of the things that we've been working on has been geared towards saying you have to do the four-year degree thing. Right, right. And I think that this is saying there is a base level that you have to have to be functional uh, no matter what you do. But there are other alternative pathways. So if you don't, for example, if you don't hit the competency score, there are other alternative pathways mm-hmm. in the graduation that were put into the budget bill that will go into effect. And this also includes things like uh, being able to do apprenticeships. It would mm-hmm. include being able to get an industry certificate, which mm-hmm. is obviously a big thing that's really coming online here in Ohio and nationally. And I think that th- that's what we're doing, which is getting back to the representative's point. How do people make a living when they get out of, of, of school? Uh, for a lot of folks, the four-year degree is right. For a lot of folks, a two-year uh, associate degree might be right. But there's also a lot of industry and trades and things like that that you can go into that pay exceptionally well and don't actually saddle you with debt. So uh, I understand why parents are very concerned because it sounds like you're watering this down. But we have to look at what are all the pathways that we have that can meet individual students and the needs of individual students where they are and get them the skills so that they can have a job and get the uh, and, and, and get what the employers uh, need. You know, when we talk about educating our babies, it starts from the very beginning. One of the things we have to really look at the system of how we're educating our young people, we want to have good citizens. Mm-hmm. You want people to be engaged. Mm-hmm. You want people to be able to know how to manage their money. You want people to actually participate in our form of democracy. Those are things I think is really a value basis of what are we investing. 13 years is a long time. Yeah. We got to think about that. 13 years is a long time. We're making a huge investment. And I can tell you right now, if you look at most families, are you satisfied? Is this is this where we the vision that you have for our young people with 13 of, of education, 13 years of education, mm-hmm. most people will tell you no. Mm. So we need to go back fundamentally, look at our system and see how we can invest so that, like I said, our young people are set up for success okay. in life. Mayor, I see you're nodding your head over there in, the, in my well, periphery. I, I agree with a lot with what you're saying, you know, and I'm often thinking the there's other factors that come into play with this. As I'm kind of watching the terrain, you know, we're seeing shrinking um, college classes And that's because I think, among other reasons, the economy is strong. And so people are going straight from high school in, and are they prepared? And I think, you know, in one way, this is one way to help them prepare. But again, I I have a concern about the watering down of <laughs> of these two content course uh, areas in particular, you know, math and English. You know, I think math is fundamental to all of us. Mm-hmm. As you're going to go into whatever sector, you're going to use it for everything that you do. Uh, and when you look at the percentages that are passing the scores that exist now, it's 82% of the state is passing this. And then I look at southeastern Ohio, and those numbers vary, but, you know, in Athens itself, it's about 92.4% that are passing that particular content area. And, and so, I, again, I question it. Mm-hmm. I guess, but so what does that actually mean? Yeah. You can pass a test to do what? Like I said, I have a full engineering degree, right? I worked as an engineer. Most of the things that we were requiring people to do to pass a test don't connect to being a productive member of society. Yeah. That's fundamentally where I, the problem is. You so what? You can pass a test. Mm-hmm. But can you actually make a livable wage that you can actually sustain yourself and your family? 
One thing that I, I noticed, maybe getting to that point, the <laughs> superintendent, he said he looked at, at help wanted ads and he was talking to companies out there and he, he, you know, he even found some jobs, supervisory jobs out there in the Ohio marketplace that that only required a high school diploma. That seems to me to where you are trying to match up what we're doing in education with what the employers out there yeah. want. I think yeah. something the representative said uh, is key. Uh, I believe that approximately only 50 percent of uh, kids that enter kindergarten test ready for kindergarten. Yeah. And if they're not ready for kindergarten, how are they going to learn to read? How are they going to learn to math? So they are behind the eight ball the whole their whole high school or grade school and high school right. career. So, um, uh, you know, it starts, education starts at birth. Uh, yes. Yeah. It, it doesn't start when you're a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we need to uh, to put more emphasis on preschool, getting kids in preschool, making sure preschools are available. I know most cities have waiting lists in preschools. There just aren't enough. They're too expensive. Their hours aren't right for working parents. I mean, there's a lot of issues. And, you know, you got to start early if, if you're going to get, you know, competency mm-hmm. when you're a senior in high school. Let me do this. Let me take a quick break. And the discussion certainly continues after a quick commercial. We'll talk about some big numbers before the Ohio primary. But voters are also telling us they're tired. Is that you? The trouble some are having with Election Day, even before it happens. Stay with us. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back, everyone. The Ohio Secretary of State put out some numbers on early voting and a few other things. So let's take a look here at the numbers so far. Nearly 150,000 absentee ballots have been requested. And of course, we know the presidential primary is coming up. But also remember this. In Ohio, we've got 482 local issues. And there are questions out there for people to answer about their services in 83 of our 88 counties. So Greg Lawson, Research fellow from the Buckeye Institute to you. If we say kind of fill in the blank, early voting, solid early voting numbers, tell us what? Well, I think it, it certainly would imply that we're going to have a pretty, um, a, a, a very solid primary turnout. And I think that you'll likely see an extremely good turnout. Presidentials are always higher. Mm-hmm. And I think that this presidential race, for a lot of reasons, both good and some bad, <laughs> too, uh, is likely to drive a lot of folks out, no matter what kind of affiliation they might have. Um, so I think the numbers are, 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 are very solid. And I think, too, it's interesting you mentioned it, because look at all those local questions mm-hmm. <laughs> that are on right. there, that are driving it, that are very important to individuals. In their day-to-day life, and so that's that's the kind of stuff that also I think does uh, uh, drive folks out. And it'll be interesting because the that big national narrative that's going on will probably have an even greater impact on those local issues mm-hmm. because it will carry some new folks into it as well. So right. it's going to be very interesting. To see. All right. So to the three other people here at the table who have run and won for office, the mayor of Lancaster, longtime resident there, David Scheffler is here. When you see early voting numbers like that. What does that tell you? Well, it's interesting because I called our board of elections on the way here, and they are actually significantly below what they expected. Really? They're, they're, they are 10, 10 to 15 percent below what they have early voting stats and, uh, and below what they expected. So they don't know. They don't have any explanation of, as to why that is. Uh, 
Talk hmm. about being tired of elections. I'm certainly tired of them already. <laughs> yeah. and, and you can't turn on TV without being blasted by election news. And it's like, geez, it's still a long way away. Okay. State Representative Stephanie House is back with us. She represents District 11. She's also an executive member of the Cleveland NAACP. Representative, what do you think? Yeah, you know, it really just varies from communities. You know, I, I did some looking at our Board of Elections of looking at early voting um, application requests, it, like the vast difference in like just some of the Cuyahoga County communities in the districts. It's like, wow, what's going on? And so you talk to people, some people are interested. Um, a lot of people have not made up their minds. I'm definitely looking on the Democratic side of things. A lot of people have not made up their minds. So it's like, Ooh, we got to get going. Wait and see here. Wait and see. Athens Mayor Steve Patterson. I think the numbers are interesting to see. I think in Athens anyway that ours are, are not uh, they're right around the average, okay. uh, but uh, we don't see any great growth uh, okay. within the region. You know what? Well, so maybe that leads us to our next topic. You br- you brought this up here, Mayor. When, it, when we're talking about voter fatigue, so we looked at an organization that was able to survey about 3,000 Americans, and then they broke it down state by state. 46% of Ohioans say we are worn out. And then I looked at some other states from our Midwestern neighbors. Okay, Iowa. Iowa, you get a pass because, I mean, seriously, with the Iowa caucuses, those people, they deserve a road trip to Canada or, heck, to Mexico. Let's put them somewhere sunny. Iowa, you do you. But Wisconsin, look at Wisconsin and Michigan right there at 51 and 52 percent, respectively. Pennsylvanians, they're like, you know what, bring it. Only 21 percent of Pennsylvanians say that they are experiencing some voter fatigue. Um, I, I think that's one of those easy poll questions to answer, but does it really get to, I mean, because you know a lot of people would go, oh yeah, I hate it. But do you think it could depress the vote? I kind of throw that out for the table if people are kind of eh about politics. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, my sense is that this is a pretty high uh, capacity. I think one of the interesting things about even the question we were talking about before is too, w- w- you know, you have a very contested Democratic primary, but mm-hmm. you have a very Obviously, pretty much a non. I mean, there's technically. I guess I don't even know if anybody's on the ballot facing Trump in Ohio who qualified, but it's not really contested. So you have differentials in terms of who has a motivation to come out and vote in the primary. But I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of folks very engaged uh, in the general election. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that is one other uh, uh, key distinction that we want to that we have to be careful about. So I don't know. I think people are annoyed by it. I think people get tired of it. I mean, my kids are turning on YouTube. uh, You know, I'm probably watching too much YouTube and let your kids do it. But they can't do almost any kind of video at all without seeing a Michael Bloomberg ad. Sure. Good, bad, and different. Sure. It's everywhere, sure. right? I mean, my right. kids know Michael Bloomberg now, <laughs> right. and there's no reason that, you know, 10, uh, 6, and 7-year-old kids should should really be paying that kind of attention yeah. to it. But it's because it's there. On the other hand, is that going to mean that people don't come out? I think when all of the primary dust settles and it's down to the general election, I think you're still going to see a very robust uh, uh, turnout. Greg's kids are like, can Mike get it done, Dad? <laughs> Because that's they what he that. keeps saying in all of these ads. He's still around in 15 for. years. He, he <laughs> hasn't built that audience. That's true. That's true. Well, you'll never hear a broadcaster say, oh, no, we don't want more commercials. Right. Yeah, that, yeah, no. Okay, we did. But, you know, I, I looked at, at some of the other numbers in that research. Three quarters of voters want caps on campaign finances. And they say there's too much money in political campaigns. Will we ever get it out, you think? Huh. I mean, until you until you get a leadership that that actually embrace that. I mean, right now, you know, there are so much money in politics. There are so many people that are enriching themselves personally or organizationally. Um, so the motivation has to come from the people. But the people that are enriching themselves, you know, 
TV stations, media outlets, consultants. People, they want this money so they can get their pockets together. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I worry about is, you know, that it, the, the interest money seem to be dominating policy, you yeah. know. So as, right. as, as politicians are running for office and having to go out and get, you know, large contributions to their campaign, when that happens, you're starting to see the shift in their own policy because they're trying to align with where the money's coming from. Mm-hmm. This is one of the great challenges we have right now, writ large, I think, in America is, you, you look at all kinds of institutions and social institutions and news institutions and every political institutions and there's a general sense I think young folks unfortunately have become pretty cynical I mean mm-hmm. especially the groups that yeah. came up in the Great Recession and are having the challenges and mm-hmm. have the college debt mm-hmm. and all sure. of those kind of things and and I think that's going to be and I mean that, that that's one of the big wild cards is you know do they come out are they motivated to come out historically they don't come out in in the in the numbers um, there seems to be support for, especially on one side, for a particular candidate that seems to motivate some folks. Will that make a big difference, and is it enough? I don't know for sure, but you're right. The, the cynicism is an unfortunate yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, still ahead here, as the conversation continues, supporting a family on minimum wage, that is a challenge for sure. Should Ohio increase it? A group representing more than 120,000 Ohioans weighed in this week with a resounding yes. The quote from the Ohio Education Association, and they are endorsing eventually getting to $13 per hour here in Ohio by 2025. Quote, with minimum wage so low, too many parents can't make ends meet. Too many students are forced to make do without the very basics. When our students have economic stability at home, they can flourish at school and fulfill their full promise to become leaders, innovators, and caring members of our community. Greg Lawson, you write about this. You put out policy papers mm-hmm. on this very subject. Should the government have a role in increasing the minimum wage? I would be very skeptical, and I have a serious concern. And here, here's what it really boils down to. Um, the minimum wage can help the folks that, obviously, when, when they're, you're working, you maintain the job, and it increases. It's definitely good for those folks. There's no doubt about it. And it accomplishes what, what advocates want then. But the problem is there's a lot of people who don't get the job. And I, I always am struck, and I'm getting struck more and more. I mean, I even saw it. I, I had a meeting yesterday at Panera, and I'm seeing kiosks. And I've seen kiosks at McDonald's, and I'm seeing things mm-hmm. like this. And... The thing you got to be careful about is what does that mean uh, for the people who don't get jobs in the first place? Or the, and, 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 of course, we want to be able to educate folks, move people up the ladder, because ultimately the goal is that nobody should have a minimum wage job. Nobody wants to have people do that long term. But the question is, how do you get people into some types of employment, getting some of the skills, doing some of the things that need to happen uh, there so that they can move up? And if you move the ladder up too far, you may end up with people who don't ever get on that in the first place. And I think that's one of the great challenges. When I knew this was a topic, I called a local entrepreneur uh, who uh, owns uh, restaurants, and uh, he said, you know, I, I have to confess, I don't even know what the minimum wage is. Is it 9 or $10 an hour? He said it's not relevant today hmm. because of the number of open jobs and the shortage of people to work. Nobody that he knows pays minimum wage anymore. They're much higher than that. So um, he said if I hired somebody at minimum wage, it would probably be a high school kid for a host or a hostess position. Hmm. But he said my my workers, none of them are close to minimum wage. Hmm. Okay. So whether raising it would be effective or not, I, I agree with Greg. I don't think it's a good idea because, uh, you know, in, I had a career in public accounting, and, and over the years I saw how many small businesses didn't make any money, didn't make a profit. Literally, they stay in business, and I always ask myself, why do you stay in business? You're not making any
any money. And if they had to pay $2 more, $3 more an hour, um, that might put them out of business or certainly would cause them to cut uh, the number of employees that they have. Okay. Representative? Okay, so we just have to look at just our economic system, right? We are talking about a minimum wage, you know, possibly going to $15 an hour versus looking at no one in Ohio should be working a full-time job and not be able to make ends meet because that's what we have going on right now. Um, I think this is more of a dynamic conversation and a proposition of really understanding what is happening in our our sectors. I mean, we have from we talked about early childhood mm -hmm. education. Those are some of the lowest paid workers that are supposed to be doing basically God's work. Mm -hmm. Right. But they can't even you can't pay your mortgage. You, you can't even provide child care for yourself, but you're supposed to be investing, helping our babies get a great start in education. So what do we truly want to pay for? And absolutely the government has a role in this be it's because it's the policies that have created the conditions that we are living here in 2020. So we, we definitely need to have a more robust conversation about creating opportunities for people to make family sustaining wages. I don't care where it is. There are corporations that are making a ton of money. Right. There are people making a ton of money on the backs of the people. You don't have a big business without people. And if we can't find a way to ensure that we are investing in people, people don't they don't they haven't saved any money at retirement. That's right now we have the conversations around Medicaid, right? Because again, you can't get Medicaid if you didn't have no money. Right. People have been working all their life and at the end have nothing, that ain't right. Mm -hmm. We better than that, and we can find a way. There's too much money in America for people not to be okay. And we, and if government is not going to do it, who's going to do it? Mayor? You know, speaking from one of the most impoverished portions of the state of Ohio, you know, I think that having something like this um, would be of great benefit to southeastern Ohio. I also uh, have did the same thing that David did. I kind of asked a couple of different businesses to include one of our local hospitals, uh, and they're well above the minimum wage. Um, the local hospital, you know, not too far long ago, said we're going to $15 an hour as starting for whatever, you know, uh, sector that is within the hospital itself. Uh, I, I, too, am, am, was a little bit... Um, I don't want to say nervous, but I was interested as to how this will impact some of the small mom and pop uh, businesses. But again, in reaching out to some of them, they were going, well, we're, we're not paying minimum wage. We're mm. paying well above minimum wage. So for it to go to 13, it, it's not going to have that great of an impact, but it can impact some businesses, mm -hmm. I think. Okay. This half hour goes by just like that, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It does. Thank you all for coming in <laughs> Thank this you. Sunday. Thank we you. appreciate it. That's again Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. Talk to your doctor about creating a plan that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Stephen Radella. He is the director of of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's Office of Defects Investigation. How are you? I'm good, Dave. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, we're going to talk about recalls and uh, awareness that needs to be increased for those uh, because they do affect an awful lot of auto owners. Absolutely. This is Recalls Awareness Week that we are launching this week. Um, last year alone, there were over 960 recalls. That includes vehicles and equipment recalls affecting over 50 million units. So a lot of people probably don't realize that their vehicle is under recall. 
um, their manufacturer has to send them a letter, at least one letter, to let them know they have a safety recall and that they have to get the, their vehicle fixed for free at their dealership. Uh, we'd like people to check at least twice a year. Uh, and Daylight Savings Time, which changes this weekend, is a great time to do that, Dave. So we want people to go to our website, which is nhtsa.gov, and there's a, a button at the top right corner that says Report a Problem, and they can go and look for their recalls right there. Um, and they type in their vehicle identification number, which is found at the lower right-hand corner of their vehicle uh, below the driver's side. Type that in, and they get an instant readout of their vehicles under recall or not. There's a wide range of uh, problems that can spark a recall that we hear about all the time, but these airbags have been the big one over the last few years, haven't they? Yes, they have. It's the largest, most complex recall in in vehicle history, really, and it's been going on for several years. But um, a lot has been done in the last several years. Uh, Over 35 million uh, vehicles have been repaired, uh, but there's still millions more left to go. And we're urging people to get these done because these, this is a very serious and dangerous recall of these affected inflators in, uh, in vehicles. Let's say somebody has bought one of these cars that is under recall for the, for the airbag. And let's say it's a car that's had a rough life and it's just sort of a beater car now that, you know, doesn't have any kind of a warranty. Is that still eligible to be fixed? Absolutely. Recalls really don't end. Um, the manufacturer is required to fix a vehicle for as long as that uh, vehicle is on the road. So if they check their VIN and find out that that vehicle is under recall, they can take it to a dealership and get it fixed for free. Um, And so that never ends. And we urge people to do that because we know that that some vehicles, uh, in fact, some of these Takata vehicles are over 20 years old now, almost 20 years old. Wow. And can have changed owners several times, but um, they can still go get it fixed for free, and we urge them to do so. And for those who aren't familiar, these airbags, which are in all kinds of cars, there's something wrong with them if they have to be activated, right? Right. Um, What happens is that inside the airbag, the uh, propellant that inflates the bag uh, degrades over time. And as it degrades, it could get, um, uh, it actually gets too, too powerful and can rupture the inflator when a crash occurs. And that rupture can send shards of metal and shrapnel into the occupant compartment and injure and or kill people. And we've seen this um, with 16 deaths in the United States and hundreds of injuries that have been reported. So it's a very serious recall. Um, and um, it's not getting every car that's out there is unreported is getting older and the risk is increasing. Talking with Stephen Radella, he's with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. These recalls, you mentioned there were more than 900 of them last year. How are those initiated? Does your office uh, make those decisions, or how does that happen? So recalls are reported by the manufacturer. When they identify a defect in their cars that's uh, an unreasonable risk to safety, by law, they're required to tell us within five days, five business days, and file a recall with us. However, we also do investigations when we get complaints and data from manufacturers. We get complaints from consumers across the country. We look for trends and we open investigations that can uh, spark recalls as well. And so it's a, it's a joint uh, effort between us and the manufacturers to identify these issues as we look through the data. And, uh, and then the manufacturer files the recall with us. We, we manage the recalls with the manufacturers, meaning they're forced, they're required to supply us with information of the, the, the notification uh, to consumers and how many vehicles they have fixed uh, over a year and a half's time once they launch the recall. Has the ramping up of safety issues and all the new sort of digital electronic components 
made them more common or more complicated or more dangerous than in past years? Uh, I wouldn't say dangerous. I would say vehicles are certainly getting more complicated. Uh, more complicated means potential for increased amounts of recalls. But I think that a lot of the recall increases have been just due to vehicle manufacturers uh, being more aware of their data, their information they have in their vehicles, and catching things a lot sooner and issuing recalls when they know they have an issue. Um, there's no doubt vehicles are getting more complex. Uh, we're seeing uh, recalls related to software and new hardware that's being put into vehicles. However, uh, with software updates, even over-the-air software updates, manufacturers uh, have the ability to address those problems a lot sooner and faster. Sometimes newer car owners can have a problem with their auto, and if they Google it online, they can find out that it's an issue that's being looked at but is not under recall, but there have been some notices filed about it. What should a car owner do in a case like that? Well, I think that if they see an issue with themselves, they can, they can certainly file a complaint with us. Um, and again, that's at our website at nhtsa.gov, report, uh, report a problem. Uh, they can also sign up for alerts uh, that if a vehicle is under their vehicle is under recall on our website, they can actually uh, sign up and then get an email instantly when a recall is, is notified uh, or notified to us. Okay. And uh, again, for folks who want to find out about their airbags or anything else with their car that may be under recall, what was the uh, the website again, Stephen? It's nhtsa.gov. They can also call our hotline at 888 888- Three two seven four two three six, where we have trained people uh, that can inform them about recalls and also take their complaints if they have one. We get over eighty thousand complaints a year from uh, people around the country, and so we are uh, read them every day, and we're very keen on um, uh, helping people as much as we can. Stephen Rodella, he is with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's Office of Defects Investigation. He's the director. Anything else you'd like to add? Just that every every day, they, uh, people should check uh, at least twice. I'm sorry, twice a year to to check their for recalls if they can, uh, and if they have issues, they can check our website or give the call, as I said, to that hotline number, and we'll be glad to uh, help them out. Okay, Stephen, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Dave. The stigma of addiction is destroying lives across the country, preventing our loved ones from getting the help they need. We are Shatterproof, a national nonprofit dedicated to ending the stigma and devastation addiction causes families. We are changing laws, creating a community of support, and providing evidence-based resources for prevention, treatment, and recovery. Stigma shatters lives. Rise up against addiction now so another life isn't lost. Get involved at shatterproof.org slash rise up. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Mr. Jeff Hall, who is the National Employment Director for Disabled American Veterans. How are you? I'm great, Dave. Thanks for having me on your show today to talk about hiring and retaining veterans with disabilities. Thanks for talking to us. Tell me first uh, about Disabled American Veterans. Well, DAV's been around since 1920. We are a charitable organization that is built completely around um, building better lives and empowering the lives of veterans and their families. And we've been doing that in a variety of ways to include helping them get their VA disability benefits, health care, 
uh, housing should they need it. We have a wide transportation network uh, where we pick people up to and take them to and from their VA medical appointments. Uh, we have full-blown representation on Capitol Hill with our excellent grassroots lobbying. In fact, Ohio is a very strong state for that. Um, and then our most recent program, uh, which we rolled out back in 2014, which is uh, the program I'm in, uh, involved with, and that's our National Employment Program. Um, and we're very, very happy to uh, be assisting veterans and their families in, in securing a uh, meaningful career, whether they've been, they're just transitioning out of the military or, you know, they've been out for a while and they're looking for better employment or something of that nature. You are putting a focus on hiring vets. That, that is correct. Uh, talking about the guide for uh, our guide that we produce, the DAV Guide for Hiring and Retaining Veterans with Disabilities, uh, is very, very important to us. We want employers to understand that this guide is out there. It's available on our website, free, easy to download uh, at jobs.dav.org. They can simply go there and access it. Um, we think it's it's a great tool uh, that answers a lot of questions. It's not a complex. It's about not a complex guide or document. It's about 36 pages in length, but it's a practical solutions guide to help answer a lot of those questions that companies may be bogged down with, especially as it comes to uh, comes into play with hiring veterans with disabilities. So we try to answer a lot of those questions in the guide, and again, it's free for download at jobs.dav.org. So over the last 10 years, the, the national unemployment rate and, and in places like Ohio has gone from, uh, you know, like uh, 10% or so down to 4% or less. Has that created better conditions or more frustrating situations for veterans, uh, for disabled veterans? Mm, I don't I don't necessarily think it's I think frustration is always going to be there for a lot of people in many, many ways. I mean, there's no cookie cutter approach, but uh, I mean, these are great times as far as from an economic standpoint. Uh, yes, our national unemployment rate, especially for veterans, is, uh, you know, at a very at an all time low, I believe. I think it kind of surged up a little bit uh, where it's around a little over three percent. But I mean, it was as low as two point seven percent, which is, wow. uh, you know, astronomically low. Um, every state, obviously, you know, it, it's better in some states than, than others. But by and large, uh, from an unemployment standpoint, uh, there are just more people working, uh, whether it creates frustrations or not. I think veterans with disabilities, obviously, they encounter things that veterans that don't have disabilities uh, would encounter. But uh, there are a lot of resources out there, and that's really where it gets down to um, is putting the education in their hands uh, as far as where to go to get that assistance, whether they come to DAV, which we hope they do, because they can learn a lot about different things they can and should be doing. We host a uh, 145 traditional and virtual career fairs each year. All of that can be found, our full schedule, certainly, uh, for all the others that we do in Cleveland, Columbus, uh, and Cincinnati, uh, as well as nationwide, can be downloaded off of uh, jobs.dav.org. So, um, you know, it's there's a lot of things happening, but most of the people coming to career fairs are not unemployed. They're underemployed. Uh, they're just looking for better opportunities, which is great. That's what I think uh, I'd be doing if I was out there looking is, you know, perhaps not being unemployed. Uh, hopefully that won't be the case. But, um, 
you know, for those looking for better opportunities, that's what we hope to present at our career fairs and with our resources online. Talking with Jeff Hall, National Employment Director for Disabled American Veterans, we hear all the time that veterans make great employees because they come from such a disciplined and and, and reliable field. Uh, they've lived a lifestyle where dependability is of utmost importance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, veterans in general, as you, as you pointed out, I mean, thanks in part to their military training and service, though, uh, veterans that have disabilities uh, tend to be, uh, and we do this through whether it's uh, our Pulse Talent Survey that we did or other means of of Q&A with veterans, um, those veterans with disabilities tend to be, and companies kind of corroborate this, and that is that they're loyal, team-oriented employees that have job-ready skills, tested leadership abilities, you know, with a strong mission-focused um, work ethic. Veterans in general have that, and that is, again, regardless of what your job was in the military, what branch of the military, um, we we focus on the fact that veterans bring, you know, that exceptional experience and capability to any job. Um, but again, for us and who we are, DAV, we're focused on those veterans that often face, you know, unique challenges when they transition from service to our country. Um back to the civilian sector, wherever that may be, um, especially if they have disabilities. And for employers, uh, what sort of incentives are available for them if they if they do hire a disabled vet? Well, companies big or small alike, um, they do recognize um, the value and importance that veterans, as well as their spouses, um, and those with, with disabilities, they, they recognize what they bring to the table walking through the door. But they do still struggle some with uh, where to begin, and they get bogged down by certain things, myths, perceptions, stigmas, uh, and the guide does explain a lot of that uh, and how they can kind of approach that, whether uh, we included some really good strategies that they can use in their hiring and recruiting efforts, but also uh, we focus a lot on you know, the incentives, as, as you're mentioning here, beyond things like you know, hiring veterans with disabilities immediately boosts the diversity and inclusion for any company. It changes the culture. It makes them more mindful of how to interact with, you know, with people with disabilities. These happen to be veterans. Uh, but then beyond those types of things, those changes, which are necessary for any company to thrive, uh, there are other things that companies should be taking advantage of. And we mentioned some of those in, in there, and I'll briefly touch on them, things like financial incentives or tax credits that are available, like the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, which hiring a disabled veteran, you can your company can receive around twelve anywhere from $1,200 to $9,600 in tax incentive. And there are companies that take it way, you know, a great deal of advantage of this. Um, and it, go, it goes with their company's mantra of hiring veterans with disabilities, but they're able to uh, recoup a lot uh, in financial incentive to do that. So a lot of that stuff, uh, as well as other um, tools, are available or, you know, are included in the guide itself. Okay. And, Jeff, as we wrap up, tell folks again what is available and how they can get it. So our DAV guide to hiring and retaining veterans with disabilities is free for companies. Uh, It's free for anybody, but companies specifically might find this of interest. We hope they do. It's available on our website at jobs.dav.org, as well as other tools and resources that we have for companies in there. 
Um, one of the things that we're going to be looking at, and we've in, we're including that right now, is uh, why companies should do business with uh, veterans with disabilities. So service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses, that's a, something where you're seeing a huge incline in veteran entrepreneurship, especially those with disabilities. So we're constantly improving the website, the tools and resources that are available, but then for veterans themselves, of course, we want them uh, to come to us. Again, they can reach us through jobs.dav.org. We'll be glad to help them in the employment sector, but also if they need assistance, uh, you know, with their VA disability benefits or, you know, any number of things, health care, transportation to and from medical appointments, uh, please contact DAV. Okay, Jeff Hall again, National Employment Director, Disabled American Veterans. Thanks for your time. Sure appreciate it. Hey, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We appreciate the service and sacrifice of veterans and their families, and we appreciate America's businesses uh, continuing their commitment to hiring veterans with disabilities. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.